I'll read out of the New King James Version, as is my custom. Hebrews chapter 13, God's Word declares, Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. For it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably, but I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in few words. Know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. Well, we are going to continue in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And I'm having a really, really, really hard time finishing this study and moving into 2 Corinthians. Um, I keep stopping at a couple of verses and... Um, they just garner so much of my attention that I realize I haven't done them justice enough compared to what I'm doing personally with them, what I've done in my uh, pulpit ministry with these verses. And so we're going to take a little extra time, even in the context of the, what comes right before and right after these verses. We already touched on them two weeks ago as we looked at uh, the uh, larger context of what's going on in Corinth there in their service, that they should be involved in um, abounding in the work of the Lord, even in the mess that they were in in their lives and in their morality and in their uh, worship patterns and all the problems that were inherent there in that church. They were still expected to serve at least in the two areas that we discussed last week of their giving or two weeks ago of their giving and their uh, fellowship of the saints, their hospitality particularly. And we're going to come back and visit that secondary part a little bit today as well, but from a different perspective. Uh, but the two verses that I've really just keep bringing me to a stop in my study and reading are verses 13 and 14 of chapter 16. It says, Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong, that all that you do be done with love. And this quintuplet of instructions, very brief and very direct, um, needs some of our attention this morning. Uh, we, again, have focused on the love aspect. I spent most of the time two weeks ago as I was 
reconsidering my messages on that part of it, that we are to do it with love. And going back to the premise uh, earlier in the book that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. That if we're really going to do any kind of ministry, it has to be out of the uh, ground swelling of genuine biblical love that we inherited from our Heavenly Father by trusting Christ Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that we then express to Him by expressing it practically to one another. And so we have that foundation, but in so doing, in discussing this, I didn't really dwell very long at all. In fact, I think all I did was read verse 13 uh, in that passage, in that message, I'm sorry. And so this morning, we want to look at the uh, other aspects of the verses following and just preceding this, these two verses but our main focus is going to be here. And let's go, Lord, in prayer before we do that. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us and the opportunity we have to spend some time in your word this morning. And Lord, it's a brief time. And we look at all the other influences and things that we have listened to and read and considered and meditated on and allowed to penetrate our thinking um, that comes from the world, that comes from our own imaginations, our own uh, thoughts. And Lord, we uh, see this few minutes And we pray that they might uh, be powerful to overwhelm while they are not going to do that in terms of uh, quantity, that the quality of what is heard today might envelop us and convince us of your truth rather than the world's lies. And that we might measure uh, rightly and value properly your word this morning. Lord, we need your help in that, and we recognize that, that the uh, tendencies of men is to go their own way, uh, like wandering sheep. And Lord, we pray that your shepherd, our Savior, might guide us into your truth by your Spirit. And Lord, that you might guard us and keep us in the fold today, theologically and as well as Um, the historical data here. But Lord, we uh, pray that your truth might go forth to your glory. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, Paul has laid out his plans for them. We spent a little time in Ephesus last week um, and looked at what was going on there in verses 9 and and as well as in 8, why he wanted to stay there. Um, He now is going to start referring to some of his... uh, uh, fellow workers, uh, some that were directly under his authority, others of equal or, or authority, at least in another realm of Apollos. So we have Timothy, Apollos. We have some who were uh, more like the Corinthians, that is in terms of their uh, being the receptors of Paul's ministry and of Apollos' ministry. And Paul lays these all out before the Corinthians with some very specific instructions in terms of their care for these individuals. Um, These men, uh, by and large, were all men listed here. Uh, Certainly for several, their families are involved as well. When we refer in verse 15 to the household of Stephanus, um, and uh, and we know that there were certainly some others uh, connected with some of these men, but predominantly these men are going to be described for us. And we have some instruction from Paul to the Corinthian church of how to relate to these individuals. Uh, to himself, he's already discussed, he's going to press that further in Second Corinthians about his relationship with this church. Um, but he wants to make sure that they recognize a responsibility to uh, know godly, um, truth-filled, obedient servants of the Lord and be able to distinguish them from others who are self-serving. And that once that discernment has been established, that every effort is done, not only in terms of uh, assisting through finances, we talked about that two weeks ago, but that every effort is poured out to assist these men, to be in a cooperation with them, and even to follow their example. That when God brings into our lives individuals of this kind of quality, who have committed themselves to the work of the Lord, who come with the uh, uh, 
recommendation, if you will, of other godly servants who are there not to serve themselves, but to serve the body of Christ and to give glory and honor to Him, um, it is incumbent upon the church that we respond. That we respond to those people. As Paul instructs them here, that if you have such a one as Timothy arrive, um, make sure that he is with you without fear. You might say, why would a speaker come in or someone like Timothy come into a church like Corinth with any kind of fearfulness? What would bring Timothy fear? We know that Timothy in First and Second Timothy was challenged multiple times to be bold. Be bold. Let no one despise your youth. Um, and, and so many people have said, well, Timothy is the timid pastor um, that, that was fearful in his work. Um, and, and very possibly that could be the case. But uh, Timothy was with the expectation of coming and being received. Yeah, you're not Paul. You're his young protege. But uh, we still are going to give you the respect that you deserve as a young man of God who wants to serve the Lord and serve him out of a pure heart and one that uh, Paul has never spoken badly of is this young man Timothy, this young preacher, who by now isn't that young. All right, he's been with Timothy for a while. He's going to be or with Paul for a while. He's going to be with him for some time longer. But here's this young man comes and let him come and let him minister. Be receptive to him because he's a man after my own heart. He's a man that has demonstrated himself in ministry and I want him to come and, and he does the work of the Lord. And we do not... Uh, Ignore him simply because of his youthfulness, because of his inexperience, or because he is not going to engage us like a Paul would. That he might come more tenderly does not mean that he comes weakly. And we often associate tenderness with weakness in our society, but such a one comes, it is the responsibility of the church to respond. And a responsive church will set such a man at ease in his ministry. And this is our first character that we encounter here in this passage. And our responsibility toward him is to set him at ease that we are a people who want to hear God's word from him. And is this what we do in our ministry, in our church, that we set people at ease, that we are receptive people who are humble enough to receive God's truth from such a one who may come with tenderness and even some level of timidity. But we will build them up. We are not to despise him. And then verse 11, it goes on, send him on his journey in peace. He may come to me. Um, that even though his ministry is itinerant, and, and maybe you say, well, I don't have to listen to him because he's not really around to really make sure or follow up or, or make me obedient. Um, and that's such foolhardiness. That is such immature thinking. But it's real, and I see it in churches. Um, I see it in people's lives that, well, you're not here to do it, so I'm not to enforce it, so therefore I don't have to listen to it. Um, how foolish. Um, it is nowhere, anywhere in the pastor's job description to enforce obedience to God's Word. The one who is your judge is not me. The one who is your judge is God, who is here, or so we claim, who is in your life by the power of the working of the presence of the Holy Spirit, so we claim. And so... The idea that somehow, well, it's just itinerant and I can just uh, kind of ignore what is said or, or not allow it to deeply root in my life um, because of the itinerant nature of some ministry. And we have some like that, like Pastor Silcott, who we have in that evangelist. And, well, you know, we only see him on occasions and, and so we can take or leave what he says. Not before God we can't. And so here comes the itinerant and our responsibility towards one in that nature is that we don't despise him because of his youthfulness or experience. But we also make sure that he is sent along in peace, that he may continue in the ministry that is laid out for him by God. 
And this is our responsibility. This is our a responsive church will do. He then jumps to another character, Apollos. And uh, he sees a great value in the ministry of Apollos for the Corinthians to such a degree that Paul says, I strongly urge him to come to you with the brethren. He's not willing, but he's going to come when he can, when at a convenient time. He's not, he can't come right now, just like I'm not going to come right now. I'm in Ephesus. I'm having an ex- uh, exceptional ministry, lots of adversity, but an exceptional ministry. Apollos, I, I invited him to go to you. Um, he's not willing um, or able, whatever circumstances that he's involved in, to get to you. He's going to try to get to you. But it's that whole understanding that we have these multiple characters with their assets that benefit the church. And Paul recognized immediately he is not all in all. He is not the beginning and end of what the Corinthians needed uh, to grow in the Lord. That there was another man, uh, Apollos, that's, whose eloquence, we are told, uh, surpasses that of Paul's. Um, who could have benefited the Corinthians. And Paul recognized that in his absence, Apollos is a wonderful individual to come in and care for some of these things. He's a like-minded man, a different kind of ministry. But the church can benefit from it. And the idea that we only want one sort of ministry, that that's the only thing that we can really benefit from, is really foreign to the Scriptures. Um, there are those out there that want to characterize that a certain pastor has to fill these roles. Um, and I've told you before, I've taken the tests, the personality tests, and, and the uh, other uh, psych tests that uh, seminaries and colleges are giving to their preacher boys um, that are studying for that. And, uh, and I am categorically against all of them. I'm also against all the spiritual gift inventory tests, categorically. Why? Because we are claiming that there is only one certain kind of personality or a certain number of traits that makes a good pastor. And it is communicating error. The fact is, is that both Apollo and Timothy and Paul were or could have been a benefit to the church of Corinth. On a different level, yes. They're all going to be different in their ministry. There are different personalities. They have a great variety here between these three. I mean, just these first three. We have this huge uh, range of ministry from the tender, timid Timothy to the, to the powerful and, and uh, almost outspoken Paul. Um, he wasn't a very good speaker. He wasn't eloquent, but boy, he was... He, his writing, you can see it in his uh, depth of study and thought. And then we have the eloquent Apollos that all of us would line up to listen to for hours. Well, the church needs all of them. The church can benefit from all of them if they choose to come to it as a responsive entity saying, I will gain what I can gain from this man recognizing that each of them have their weaknesses and each of them have their strengths. And I need to plow through and overlook and sidestep the weaknesses and draw from the what they probably view as their weaknesses, but what we would see as their strengths. That's kind of a tricky thing there. And allow God to minister to us through them. If we come and sit down with an attitude that I don't like this guy or I don't like this part of his ministry, um, then that's exactly what you're going to get out of it. And so Paul sees a great value in Apollos. He's not saying that I don't want you to be an undivided church. I want all your allegiance to me. No. Back there at the beginning of this book where it says, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter, I'm of Christ. Paul says, there's no division amongst us. And so whether it's me or Timothy or Apollos, they need to come and minister to you. You can grow by all these men's ministries. Paul is still in that role of saying, here's someone who can be of great value to you. He presses this on in verse 15. The house of the Stephanus, which we are introduced to in Acts um, that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such people. And so here's a, another whole household who has 
one of the first who trusted in Christ in their region. And they have now committed themselves to ministering the saints. We don't know what capacity they're out there ministering. We really don't. We're not told extensively what capacity the household of Stephanus is involved, but they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints in some manner. And Paul's expectation is that when you have opportunity for them to minister to you, you should submit to them. Maybe they were even the homegrown family. Maybe their family from Corinth come back and now they want to minister to their hometown. Paul says, listen, um, if you need some credentials for them, I'll give it for them. They are ministering for the saints. Their focus is of the care and, and concern of the body of Christ. And therefore, you should need to submit to them and to everyone who works and labors with us. Paul says, these are fellow laborers. When Paul identifies fellow laborers, his expectation is the church is going to be responsive to their ministry. Because they have this good report. And not all people have this kind of good report. And I'm not talking about a good report in terms of, and I get requests for different groups to come in here and sing or or. If they knew what, how little we were, they wouldn't send me probably three-fourths of those requests. But I get them to bring... You know, I could just imagine the Blackwood brothers coming here and singing for us. But um, And other very famous Christian groups, sometimes I'm just going to say, yeah, we can have you come on in for a love offering or something. Um, then they find out that there's 30 of us or 40 of us. And, but uh, I get these requests, and they always have this sheet of paper with all these pastors who are endorsing them. And I go through that list. And of course, because of the ecumenical nature of their ministry, that list is a smattering. They try to pick big names from each. You know, here's a big Luther name. Here's a big Baptist name. Here's a big... And they've got to get one of those that nationally recognize individuals um, that if they endorse them, that therefore they must be the guy. So he's okay to have in your congregation. Um... And that's not what Paul's doing. He's not just uh, giving out his endorsements um, because he's a national figure, but rather these are ones he personally knows. He is engaged in ministry with their fellow laborers, and they are. And Paul himself, the one who is recommending them, is himself known to the church. Now, I might know of a lot of people. I think you guys know of a lot of pastors and national spiritual figures. That doesn't mean they're known to you. And so I really don't care who Charles Swindoll recommends because I don't really know him. I've read his books. I've, uh, I've heard his radio program, but I don't know him. Nor does our church really have any connection with him. And I look at some of the groups and people he's recommending and I scratch my head a little bit. I go, really? And I'm not just picking on him. It could be any number of big name individuals because that's who we all use. But Paul here says, listen, you have an intimate relationship with me. These are my fellow laborers and you need to submit to them because they are really looking out for you. They want you to grow in the Lord. And when they come with this kind of backing that Paul gives to them, that they are laborers, that they're ministries for the saints, that they work hard, our responsibility, just as we saw to Timothy, that we set him at ease, that we honor his ministry and that we help him along in it, that we are responsive again to the variety that comes from Timothy's and Apollos and now Stephanus's, but that we might also submit to such. This should be the attitude within the church. He goes on and lists some others, Fortunatus, Achaicus, Achaicus. What is their ministry? What is their purpose in coming to the Corinthians? Verse 17, the end says, for what was lacking on your part they supplied. For they refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. That we recognize those who are striving to faithfully serve the Lord by serving the church, not for their own personal gain, not for their own personal advancement, but for the 
pure ministry of the Word of God to His people, that the gospel might go forth, that the saints might be strengthened and built up, that what is lacking can be filled in. And yes, Paul recognizes that even after his ministry to the Corinthians, there could be some things lacking. Obviously, there were some things lacking because he wrote this book and the next one. So he's not the end all. And once we begin to put this one individual on such a uh, pedestal, we come into trouble. And that's the trouble the Corinthians were having. That they were a divided church because they put one man's teaching equal to God's Word. Equal to the epitome of truth. And while we have the inspired Word of God being written here to the Corinthians through Paul. He wasn't the only writer of inspired Scripture and Peter recognizes that variety that's there and Paul writes hard stuff and apparently Peter felt what he wrote was easy stuff. Although I've found a lot of people have problems with Peter more than they have with Paul sometimes. Um, But we find that uh, Paul's expectation wasn't that all you needed was him. Any pastor that comes in and says, all you need um, is my ministry is narrow-minded. And that's why we have Sunday school and that's why I try very hard to limit how much I teach the adult Sunday school classes because I want you to be ministered to by others who are studying the God's Word, have a different approach. Hopefully they're still teaching truth from Scripture. That's not the different approach. I'm referring to, but rather a, a different personality and different uh, perspectives. And the church needs that to be a well-rounded and balanced church. And so we have all of these individuals that God brings into a church's life and its ministry, not so you can pick and choose which one you are going to put on your pedestal and follow to the nth degree, but rather that you might benefit from them all and that the only one that is elevated in our midst is Jesus Christ. Because that's what all true ministers of God's Word have as their objective. Is that the church grow in their knowledge and in faith in Jesus Christ. I am not seeking, nor did Paul here, seek to build a personal loyalty, a personal following. He decries that throughout this whole book from start and now to finish. Now, do we have loyalty to our favorite pastors or whatever? Certainly, but as soon as we say that they are infallible, we are getting ready to run into a lot of error. Because that kind of attribute being placed upon a man of this flesh is a very dangerous thing. And then when they do disappoint us, because we've elevated them so far... What happens to our faith? It crumbles because it's built upon a man instead of God's Word. And so through this variety, and yet every one of these humble servants of God seeking to glorify God, doing the hard work, and Paul says they've been of value to me, and they've been of value to you. And we should acknowledge these men. We should set them up and recognize them. And Paul's, in Hebrews, a passage we already studied, talked about, and he's going to correlate this to the rest of my message. This is just the introduction. Uh, This is part A. Last week I had that A and B thing. It works so well. I'm doing it this week too. Um, In Hebrews, the writer there of Hebrews talks about that relationship um, over and over again, about how do we relate to those that God's put in leadership over us? And there in Hebrews 13, he talks about um, their purpose. And their purpose, and all men who have this as their purpose in ministry, is to uh, watch out for the souls of the saints. Well, how do you help them? Well, you obey them. You're submissive to them. You know that they have to give an account. And if they recognize that, one of your jobs is to make their job joyful. Why? Because all of that is to your benefit, not to theirs. It's not to line my pockets or my pride. It's not to stroke my ego. It's for your own benefit 
to have a pastor who is not discouraged, to have evangelists come in who are joyfully and and with no fear let uh, can declare their belief systems. And, and uh, I think that's one of the things I try to press very strongly upon our missionaries, the lostings when they come here. I says, preach God's word. You don't need to be afraid here. You know, and I know that you hold uh, some print, some doctrinal positions that would get you into trouble in other churches, but they're not going to get you into trouble here if they're founded squarely upon God's word and you hold them fervently. Period. Have no fear. I know what it was like as a missionary going to churches and, oh, I have to be afraid. Did I use the right version of the Bible? Um, did I, uh, and you have to be, a, and you have to sit there and walk on eggshells. Or they're going to pull the rug right out from underneath you. Paul says, you know, that's not profitable to the church. I remember one congregation I spoke to, and uh, I had a question and answer time at the end of my presentation, and one of the astute men uh, raised his hands, and he says, you know, what you just said is not very good for for you. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, it's not good for you to come here and tell us that. I said, well, it's the truth. And he's like, but it's not going to benefit you long term. I said, that's not my job here. My job is to benefit the church. And as a missionary supported by you, you need to know the truth. And I think on that occasion I was talking about um, measuring missionaries by their presentations. Um, I don't use a multimedia presentation every Sunday here, do I? But yet when I was out raising funds and raising support, that's what we did. And, And I got to preach the same sermon every Sunday. I don't get to do that here. And I was relating all of this. And the gentleman just said, that's not good for us to know. Yes, it is. It's not good for me for you to know that, but it's good for you to know that, that that's not how you measure the ministry is by how moving the presentation was when they came by and how touching their slideshow was or their multimedia presentation. And it just rushed my heart. Well, that's meant to do that. That doesn't qualify them. So Paul says, here are some people who are qualified. What do we do when we encounter such an individual? We obey them. We recognize the need to submit to them. We recognize they have an accountability not to us, but to God. And so I'm going to make their ministry joyful and not grieving. Why? Because it's to our profit. And so we are called to engage with our leadership and one of the things that's intermittent here just as it is at the end of first corinthians is this balance where paul talks about making sure you entertain strangers brotherly love taking care of prisoners and those who have been mistreated among the body as well as remembering those who have rule over you who spoke the word of God and whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct. So remember the historical figures that have been spiritual leaders in your life. Remember the current figures that are spiritual leaders in your life and have these right relationships with him, but tucked in between these, just as it is in Second Corinthians. So it is here in Hebrews, or First Corinthians. So it is here in Hebrews 13. Tucked in between here is the idea of in your relationship with those that come to minister to you, uh, the only way you're going to really fulfill your responsibility towards them is if you live out 2 Corinthians 16, 13, and 14. If you want to have a right relationship with your leadership and really grow as a result of Timothy's and Apollos's and Paul's and Stephanus's and whoever else God brings into your life in spiritual leadership. If you really want to grow, you're going to have to uh, bring yourself to bring that quintuplet of instructions into your life in a very real way. That you can't be passive. That somehow, well, if he doesn't move me, that's his problem. He's not a very good preacher. I have long said that well, 80 to 90% of the effectiveness of my message depends upon what you were doing last night. 
Yeah, 80 to 90% of the effectiveness of my message this morning to you is dependent upon what you were doing last night. See, if you were engaged in sin last night, you don't want to hear the truth this morning. If you were staying up late, you don't, you're not going to be alert enough to hear the truth this morning. If you were just wanting to be entertained all last night, and that's what you expect when you come here, you're not going to get anything out of it. If you'd never engaged yourself in prayer last night for your pastor and for this message, then you're not ready. And we have the idea that somehow if I'm not ministered to during so-and-so's thing, it's he's a failure. But tucked in both of these passages in the middle of talking about, here I've got Timothy and Apollos here, I've got Stephanus and these other guys, the other two guys listed there, I'm not going to try to pronounce their names again, Fortunatus or... Uh, between these two is this very important, pivotal passage. And so, here in Hebrews 13, between remember those who rule over you, remember the prisoners, uh, entertain strangers, and all this relationship stuff, and what's going to come out later on, obey those who rule over you, uh, do good to share, um, is, is tucked in here, your relationship with Jesus Christ, uh, don't be carried about by very strange doctrines. It's good to be heart established by grace. Now, foods. Um, and he goes into Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so tucked into here is this idea that you should be not covetous. You should be um, content. You should be following after righteousness. You should be dependent upon Jesus Christ. All these things. You have an active role in effectual ministry. It is not simply on my shoulders to produce great sermons every week. Nor is it upon Pastor Silcott to present things that entertain us every time he comes. Or any other speaker. Rather, it is incumbent upon us to make sure we are coming ready to receive their ministry. And so here in verses 13 and 14, in 1 Corinthians 16, I want to look at these five things and I'm going to take two or three minutes for each one. They deserve a lot more. And I hope you'll consider them much more deeply than what I'm going to give them this morning. First of all, you need to be watchful. This comes right out of uh, Christ's teaching. We find it over and over and over again, not only in Paul's, but in other authors of the New Testament that we watch. Matthew 24, 42, if you want to turn there very quickly. Um, the all of a discourse um, very poignantly stating about the destruction of Jerusalem and the coming end times. Um, we have this declaration uh, by Christ in verse 42, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Oh, that we might be watchful. That is that we have an expectation of God's movement amongst us. Are you coming in relationship to those that are called to minister with an expectation of God's work, God's presence, God's activity? And yes, that watchfulness ultimately is about the end of Christ coming in, in His person uh, and the establishment of His kingdom. But watchfulness in and of itself is the expectation that God is going to do something. Do you get up this morning with that kind of watchfulness? I am expecting God to do something in my life through those that He has brought into my life and spiritual leadership to give me God's Word and to feed me and to nourish me and to, and to sometimes confront me and convict me. Am I expecting God to do something? Do I have a watchfulness that I recognize the last hour and I'm alert to the fact. Now, here's what a watchman does. He's not only concerned about making sure that what's behind him is safe, but to make sure that what's out in front of him is clear. And our expecta- my expectation is that if we are a watchful church, we are alert to what's out there. And that we are willing to recognize that, yes, we're watching for Christ's coming, but... 
in the context of Matthew 24, what that means is that I realize there's a lot of junk out there that I have to be alert to. I have to be, I have to be careful with and that there's going to be a lot of hardship going on. There's going to be tribulations and there's going to be trials. There's going to be adversaries. There's going to be opposition. Am I alert to it? And trying to minister to people who are asleep is almost impossible as a pastor. So Paul says, listen, if you want to be those that can really benefit from Timothy and from Apollos, from Paul, from Peter, from Stephanus, from Fortunatus, you want to be benefit from any of these, you need to be alert. You need to have your mind thinking upon the coming of Christ. You have to have other-mindedness going on. And if you're just dull, deadened by entertainment and sin, then... No, you're not going to be responsive to the ministry of anyone. Even if Jesus himself showed up here. Go, really? Do you think everyone who heard Jesus teach believed him? Followed him? Benefited from him? No, he had enemies. People who hated what he said. Wanted to kill him. I think they did kill him, in fact. So first we need to be watchful. Alert, attentive to the things of God. We walk in spiritually asleep in church and then we say, oh, the pastor didn't really hit me very much. Yeah, I didn't get much out of that. Well, you were asleep to begin with. Be watchful. The second of the five here, stand fast in the faith. Powerful declaration of positioning ourselves. This, if I wanted to take it, would take us into Philippians. Let's go there. i got to take the time. Philippians chapter 1. Paul in Philippians has built this out, this standing fast in the faith. He begins his book in chapter 1 with it and it's going to conclude in it. Look at verse 27. Um, the mind of Christ, the love of Christ that, we, that Paul wanted to, to abound in the Philippians more and more. Verse 27 is kind of a at the introductory level kind of a summarization. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For you, to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Oh, we would stand fast that we would not be such weebly-wobbly Christians. That we would have a little bit of a skeletal system amongst us. Something that would stand us up and keep us erect for Christ. Oh, that we would be outstanding, upstanding in our Christianity. Paul, in his concluding remarks at the end of this book of Philippians, chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy, my crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Why? Because of all that he's written about um, his relationship of Wanting the power of the resurrection and, and the transformation of being watchful of Christ's coming that was going to transform these lowly bodies into that heavenly one. Because of all of that, because of our future, because we have been spiritually alert to the presence and working and coming of Christ, now that we would stand fast in it, that we would take a position, know what we really genuinely believe, and withstand the opposition that is sure to come. Not occasionally, not uh, maybe once in your lifetime, not maybe or maybe not, is sure. If you are really spiritually alert, looking for Christ's coming, living for the kingdom of God, be braced to stand against opposition, that you are going to go against a flow. And you can either root yourself 
and stand or you can just be a twig floating down the creek. I think you know which one has the harder life. We also know which one is dependable. Which one is reliable? Which one is a benefit? And so if we come into church and we aren't willing to really stand for anything all week long, we come in here and sit, and I hope no one from my work ever knows I come here, because they don't know who you are, or what you claim at least here on Sundays. then no wonder you're not going to get anything out of anyone's ministry. No matter how effectual a speaker they are. If you are unwilling to take that truth and stand in it, to hold to it unwaveringly against any that come against it. And so if we have this willy-nilly attitude that I'm just going to go with this flavor of doctrine or this popular belief system or this... Um, if that's the nature, then you're not going to truly grow in Christ by real ministers of the gospel, no matter what their credentials. To really grow by these men's ministry requires something of us, that we be watchful, alert, looking for the kingdom of Christ first and not this world, that we are prepared, braced, and standing fast in the faith, that we know what we believe, we are willing to conform that belief always to God's Word. We are not rigid in it in terms of being uh, immalleable in God's hands, but rather we are rigid in it against the world. And then we have a really unusual word. The third one, be brave. Be brave. You see, standing fast in the faith um, is going to bring you friction into your life. It's going to bring you in opposition to people. It's going to bring you uh, uh, into that adversarial relationship with lots of people. Because you're going to be looking for the kingdom of God. You're going to be living differently. You'll be standing fast in your faith what the world is going to view as intolerant. That's the PC way to describe people that excuses uh, opposition against the intolerant. So we are tolerant of everyone but the intolerant. We're intolerant of the intolerant. And it takes a degree of courage to deal with that. Paul says, be courageous. Be brave. Yes, you're going to be different than the world because you're not going to be thinking on earthly terms. You're not going to be looking for an earthly kingdom. Your hope is not in politicians or economies or in education. Your hope is in the Lord. And your lifestyle should reflect that. And as it does so, um, you're going to have to take a stand. And there is a lot that wants to sweep you away from that. Who wants? And it's a powerful flood. It's a fast-flowing current that society puts around us to try to draw us away from Christ. Believe me. And most of us are floating in that current, instead of rooted in the truth and taking a stand and making it go around us and forcing it. And so I have in my life and in my ministry taken a stand. Do I anticipate everyone to love that? No. Do I expect opposition? Yes. Do I start to doubt the stand? No. No. And I have Christians come up to me and say, well, what if? What if? What if? What if? What if? Our answer to all those what ifs, all those possible outcomes and possible things that could happen, many of which are strictly in your imagination, 
I answer, what if? By Christ. We should be the most courageous people on the planet. Because by the power of Christ and the power of the resurrection, there is nothing of this world or of the next that will oppose us. Be brave. Paul knew what he was talking about. He had faced stoning. He had faced death many times. He would still face it more times. Imprisonment, loss of everything, of his own life. He recognized the need for courage. And if we come into church, cowards, and wonder why we're never ministered to, well, it's not the guy's fault up here. Because you're not going to take anything he teaches you and live it out if we're cowards. If we're ashamed of Christ. Turn to Mark 8. I gave you the passages for the other ones. I want you to turn to Mark 8. This bravery, this courage is... I think, described by Christ here. He uses a different term, but I think it still applies to our passage in Mark chapter 8. At the end of the chapter, he's been talking about his death, burial, resurrection. He's been prophesying it. Verse 34 says, When he called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Do you get it, folks? If we are cowards for Christ, we are none of His. And no wonder we don't grow, no matter what the preacher is preaching, no matter how much he has studied, no matter how eloquent his delivery, no matter how tender and heart-wrenching his presentation. We must come to church courageous, unashamed of the gospel, willing to say boldly, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And I am unashamed of it. I am not going to try to look like you, sound like you, act like you, because I am not like you. And you can call me every name you want in the book. It's irrelevant. You can injure me. You can take away my stuff. You can fire me from my job. I I'm not ashamed of my Savior and His words. No relationship is comparable to my relationship with Him. And brethren, that is courage. And God says that you have that kind of courage. Though the world against you, that kind of courage represents the power of Christ in us that saves our souls. Number four, be strong. And again, we've looked at this extensively in other passages. There needs to be a depth and a width and a breadth to our faith. And strength of faith is not something we just decide. It is something that is grown. It is established first by tender soil that receives a seed that allows it to take root in it. That it might grow into a productive plant. But it also does the hard work of making sure the weeds are gone. This is the strength that it talks of here. 
strength and courage is combined in the description and the instruction to Joshua, be strong and very courageous, for the Lord is with you. And that's fine. And that's exciting. But you know what? That didn't help Israel. It wasn't until Israel came to Joshua and said the exact same words. In a study of Joshua, you'll find here's the the Lord coming to Joshua, be strong and very courageous, be strong and very courageous, repeating and repeating. A few chapters later, here comes Israel. And they stand before Joshua. And they look at him and the leadership says, Joshua, be strong and courageous. We're with you. And we can have strong, courageous leadership all over the church. But if the church itself isn't willing to stand up and be strong and courageous with those leaders, to what end will it occur? We'll have a line of discouraged destroyed men who could not impact a church because they were full of weak cowards that refused to live out their faith except in the ritual Sunday morning. Oh, that we would like Israel get up before our leadership and declare, you be strong, courageous. We're going to follow you into every battle you take us. Instead of deteriorating your strength or courage, we will enhance it by adding our own. You see, we often look at Timothy as the timid one, but I got to tell you, Timothy was out there doing it. Maybe a little fearfully, but he did it. I mean, he sucked it up and stuck out his chest and took those steps forward and showed up at Corinth and showed up at Ephesus and showed up wherever Paul sent him and did his job. Maybe he's not so timid after all. We are talking about strength not only physically but of character. Strength of convictions. God calls us to this. If we truly want to benefit from those that He brings into our ministry, they will add strength to strength, but they cannot bring strength to weakness. What weakens a Christian? Surprise. Sin unbelief, every ism of the world that we hold in regard in our own heart saps us of spiritual strength. Every day that goes by where we do not open the pages of Scripture to invest ourselves in us in God's Word weakens us. It is very hard Nay, it is impossible to minister spiritual growth to a people who aren't strong enough to open their Bible and read it themselves between Sunday noon and Sunday 10.30 a.m. If this is the extent of your spiritual workout, no, You will not grow in Christ. To be strong. To increase in fortitude requires daily exercise. Being God's Word. Live it out. And then 14, we're not, verse 14, we're not going to spend any time on this morning. Because we've spent huge portions of time on it throughout Corinthians. So all you're going to hear from me is knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Do it all in love. If you don't love the leadership of your church enough to pray for them, which Paul's going to say next week, pray for me, please. 
I'm sorry, in Hebrews 13 we read this morning. Pray for me, please. Do we love one another enough to grow together as a church? Or are we simply following our own interests? Watch. Be alert. Be brave. Be courageous. Stand fast in your faith. Be strong. Do it all in love. This kind of congregation any man can minister to who loves the Lord, does the work of the saints, of any personality type, of any giftedness, that kind of congregation will always benefit from every godly resource provided it. I pray we be such a church.